Hello, and welcome to Cover to Credits, the bi-weekly podcast where we discuss books and their movie adaptations. I'm Ian George. And I'm Adina Hilton. In this episode, we'll be discussing Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire. Harry Potter and the Goblet of Fire was written by J.K. Rowling and published in 2000. And the film adaptation, which came out in 2005, was directed by Mike Newell. We're doing the fourth? It's it's The num- fourth one! It's number four. <laughs> We're halfway... Uh, I guess in both versions, you know, yeah. books and movies, essentially. So mm-hmm. crossing the threshold. Yeah. So to get this right out of the way, we just want to say, fuck J.K. Rowling. Yes. Uh, we do not agree with anything that she says about trans folks. And um, she's just honestly like, I feel like she's been building to this for so long. Yeah. You know, there have been like comments and things, you know, made. And I think it was something that like people have been like kind of uncomfortably aware of for a while. Especially people in the trans community. Absolutely. Um, But she has been hammering home. Like uh, she's really making a point of it at this point. You know what I mean? She's taking a stand. Yeah. She's really, uh, for whatever reason, decided to take up this cause, you know, in her mind. Um, I have no idea why. I don't know what is making it her. It literally makes no sense at all. And like literally everyone for the longest time has just been like, just shut the fuck up. Please shut the fuck up. Like, just stop. Yeah, we love Harry Potter. We want to forget that you believe this. Yeah, but um, unfortunately she's made it like her mission basically yeah. to continue this hatred against trans folks. Um, so we just want everyone to know that's listening that we do not agree with this at all and it makes us deeply uncomfortable and in fact Ian and I were discussing whether or not to even continue doing um, these episodes because it feels a little bit wrong to promote them and to talk about them Yeah, when she's been so hateful. Um, but we decided that like Harry Potter does mean a lot to so many people and, you know, we want to be able to celebrate that. Yeah. And, you know, it's cool, too, because speaking from the perspective of adaptations, you know what I mean, as as we do on this podcast, uh, you know, the movie franchise had such a large number of people involved, you know, including yeah. the main cast members and many of them, at least like the main actors, have been outspoken against J.K. Rowling and the things she said. You know, Daniel Radcliffe, uh, Emma Watson, and Rupert Grint. Yeah. Um, and so that's really cool that like these people who have, you know, stakes and have kind of carved out their own place in the Harry Potter franchise have been able to speak up, mm-hmm. um, which is really great. You know what I mean? I think it kind of makes you feel like. The, the world has exceeded her. It's yes, gone beyond yes. her influence. And it's not just hers anymore. It's all of our story. Because, like, it has become part of our culture, basically. Mm-hmm. But um, just in order to make sure that the focus when we're promoting these episodes is really on supporting the trans community, because God knows they need the support. You know, they've been through so much lately. And, you know, trans people are honestly in more danger than anyone else um, yeah. in our country, at least in the U S where yeah. we live. Yeah. Um, it's really dangerous to be trans. So, um, we've decided that for October, we're going to donate all of our Patreon earnings for the month to, uh, sisters Pittsburgh, which is a trans led and trans focused organization that helps the trans community in Pittsburgh, which is where we live. And whenever we do Harry Potter episodes in the future, we're going to donate money to this organization because again, we want to make sure that we're not just like benefiting from yeah the fact that jk rowling is a terrible person you know we (laughs) want to be like okay you know the focus should be on you know spreading love and not hate so i encourage you 
as well. If you're feeling like you're really mad at JK Rowling for doing this, like put some money towards like a trans focused organization. Yeah. I, you know, a little bit goes a long way, I think, and supporting organizations like this, um, especially I think small, like community focused ones. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It, it's, it's a really good way to just support the trans community and put a mig- middle finger up to JK Rowling. Exactly. I mean, she who must not be named. <laughs> <laughs> She's become her own worst enemy. I know. Right. <laughs> but, um, Thank you for listening to that long introduction. Yeah. Um, we're just excited to continue with this series and to, again, say fuck you to J.K. Rowling. So let's start. Let's do it. Um, so Goblet of Fire. Yes. We're get, let, let's, let's jump in. And we're actually starting things off uh, on a different foot in this book and film. Yes. Uh, with a uh, kind of intro foreshadowing chapter that doesn't really include Harry at all. Yeah. I mean, Harry kind of wakes up from a yeah. dream where you re- he's dreaming. You it. realize he's kind of like eavesdropping in, but it's not apparent at first. Mm-hmm. Um, but it takes place at uh, the Riddle House, uh, yes. the house that belonged to Voldemort's father mm-hmm. and this uh, old caretaker who notices a light on in the old house and mm-hmm. goes up to investigate. Yeah. And he overhears part of a conversation. We get some like, Little hints dropped about, you know, uh, a Bertha Jorkins. Who's that? I bet she's important. She's not. Uh, <laughs> uh, also, Nagini the snake needs to be milked, apparently. Yeah, uh, that- I guess Voldemort is drinking snake milk. Um, Wormtail is apparently doing that job for him. <laughs> um, yeah, Wormtail's there. It's like all sinister, mysterious. We get hints of what's to come. And then, unfortunately, the muggle caretaker gets murdered um, and Harry wakes up. Yes. And this is one of the first big divergences from book and movie is that in the book, he wakes up where he does every summer uh, in the Dursley's home. Yes. And we get a whole, whole fun, wacky Dursley's. I know. Uh, we're back to this. We're, we're back to the Dursley's. And we brought this up um, in the last two episodes, just being like, why do we still get these like wacky Dursley episodes like in the books? Yeah. It just wastes so much time and pages and for the fourth book which is like twice as long as like the third one yes um it just feels like a lot of wasted time especially at the beginning we find out oh great uh dudley has to be on a diet because jk rowling continues to slut or i said slut shame (laughs) fat shame (laughs) i'm sorry slip of the tongue there (laughs) oh no i don't know why that just cracked me up so much Uh, (laughs) fat shame fat shame yeah uh dudley and you know obviously uncle vernon as well yeah yeah it's like it's a really short uh, out of all the dursley's uh intros like it's probably the shortest but also just feels like the most pointless yeah it's like i don't care you don't care let's just like get this over with um but pretty soon harry is uh visiting the weasleys Mm -hmm. uh and that's actually where the movie smartly picks up harry just wakes up at the weasleys yeah which is great Thank you. <laughs> yes, we didn't need that. Yeah. yeah, they're about to head to the Quidditch World Cup. Um, and this is super interesting because this sort of ties into a larger theme of this book and movie, which is opening up the world of the wizarding world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it's really funny because Harry... 
like he's going like they're walking through. There's kind of like a campground outside the Quidditch World Cup where mm-hmm. a lot of people from all over the world are staying. And Harry's like, wow, like I never even thought about wizards existing in like other in countries. other countries. And I'm like, what the fuck? Harry? You're like <laughs> in, you're going into your fourth year of school. Yeah. And you're like, wow, other people have like cultures and magic and like who could have guessed? Yeah, clearly um, Harry's education is pretty lacking. Yeah, and I understand that, like, Harry is kind of, to an extent, like, the placeholder, like, for the reader. You know what I mean? Where, like, we haven't been told about that, so we kind of only know, or Harry only knows what we've kind of experienced. But, like, I don't think that's necessary at this point. Like, Harry can be like... Oh, yeah, there are people from uh, this country and I've read about them. And, and we like, learned people... about it in this class. Yeah, just tell us that you've been learning things, Harry. That's all we ask. Yeah, <laughs> clearly Harry has not been learning anything. No, at <laughs> least about world uh, politics or wizards and stuff. Yeah, I also just want to like take a second and talk about port keys. Oh, yes, the port keys. Because I feel like in every book and movie, we get like a new mode of transportation. Like, in the second one, it was, like, the flu powder. In yes. the third one, it was the night bus. This one, it's port keys. We also have been introduced to apparating at this point. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And then, of course, you just have, like, brooms. You have, like, physical modes of transportation. But, like, mm-hmm. specifically, like, the teleporting variety. Yeah. There's just a lot of them in the Harry Potter universe. I think it does explain port keys pretty well in the book because they talk about having to transport, like, a hundred thousand wizards to like one spot in the country and how they can't have everyone like apparate there at the same time. Yeah. It doesn't make sense. Like they're kind of on a time schedule. Like I guess the port key activates at a certain time and you have to be there to be touching it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, it does. I think it justifies its place in, um, the wizarding world. I think it does raise a lot of questions though, about like how often poor keys are used and how often people get accidentally like transported when they don't mean to be. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. What's the, um, the restrictions on port keys? How often are they used? Cause I'm pretty sure this is like the only book that really has port key technology (laughs) for lack of a better term. Port key technology. Yeah. Yeah. Newly developed. Uh, but so they're at the, the Wizarding World Cup, the Wizarding World Cup, Jesus Christ, the Quidditch World Cup, (laughs) you know, played by wizards. Yeah. Uh, and it's kind of built up to be this like huge event. I think the movie to a degree does a good job with this, uh, seeing the number of tents and like the stadium design is kind of, is is kind of cool the way it's like sunken into the ground. Yeah, I did like that. I will say though, the special effects are not the best. They were the weakest in the movie at yeah. this point, I think. Yeah, I don't know. Something about the the shots of them in the stands and... And the players like flying fly- around. Yeah, I don't know. Something about the special effects here. And like Harry Potter has pretty solid special effects throughout the series. Like A surprisingly good amount of CGI. Even in the early movies. Uh, so it is a little disappointing that this one kind of fumbles a little bit in that regard. Mm-hmm. And clearly, like, they knew their limitations in a way, because in the movie, like, we see the <laughs> beginning of the Quidditch uh, World Cup starting, and then it's like, cut, it's over, okay, yeah. like, they're back at the tent. Yeah, I would like to say, though, in the book, the way the World Cup, and I get why this was cut from the movie, it's like, it's yeah. two teams, we have no, we have nothing invested in them. No, it's not viewers. like Harry flying. No, or, Yeah, no. Gryffindor. There's no need for it. Um, but I will say in the book, I thought it was interesting because the way this game 
plays out is that uh, the Bulgarian team falls behind by a significant number of points, and the game ends when Crumb catches the snitch, but it's not enough points for them to win. Yeah. Which is very weird, because I think we've talked about, like, how that's a weird thing in Quidditch. Yeah. How, like, and I wish it was explored here that, like, oh, once you fall behind a certain number of points that the snitch won't make up for, Yeah, wouldn't it be more interesting if one seeker was trying to stop the other? Yes. You know what I mean? From actually catching it, because mm-hmm. then they'll just lose no matter what. Yeah. Instead, like, Crumb catches it, and they're like, oh, he lost on his own terms, and that's all that matters. I'm like, <laughs> I'm like what? what? <laughs> that's really weird. I'm sure Crumb's team is, like, pissed at him. <laughs> but regardless, I wanted to address that kind of interesting game that's talked about in this book yeah um just like with the opening world thing like seeing like different countries represented like there's a few scenes in the book where fudge uh the ministry of minister of magic um for england is like super rude to the bulgarian like representative yeah and in fact uh he doesn't speak bulgarian and mispronounces the man's name like multiple times. And yeah. then the Bulgarian guy like kind of reveals that he knew English the whole time and was like fucking with Fudge, which I like. <laughs> which is great. But part of me is like, they're magic. How do they not understand each other's languages? Or like have some kind of translation device. Yeah. Like some type of easy barrier crossing between. Yeah. This shouldn't be an issue. It shouldn't be. In the wizarding world. Which is why it was ridiculous to me. It, also, as the minister of magic, like, come on, man. Get, get your shit together. I know. You're supposed to be like the representative. Like, you need to stop being so rude. Learn another language or magic it to yeah. happen. I don't care. <laughs> In the book, um, Harry and the Weasleys get to sit in the top box because they get, like, kind of a favor um, by Ludo Bagman, who's, like, the head of, like, some... Gaming? Gaming in the ministry. Yeah. Um, we also meet Barty Crouch, who um, is the head of, like, international cooperation between mm-hmm. um, countries, which is interesting. Um, and we meet Winky. Winky. Winky the house elf who belongs to uh, Barty Crouch. But essentially, the the game plays out like we mentioned, and everyone kind of goes back to their tents. They're celebrating, uh, Ireland winning, and then something kind of scary happens. This kind of attack unfolds in the encampment. Mm -hmm. A bunch of Death Eaters, or like ex-Death Eaters, um, kind of kidnap this muggle family that lives nearby, and they're torturing them. And it's really upsetting because um, it's not really got into at all in the movie. No. But in the book, like, they have this man and his wife and then his two kids as well. And they're kind of, like, floating them around and yeah. kind of, like, I, I don't know if they're, like, hurting them or just scaring them. I'm not sure of the full context. Uh, yeah, I think this is one of the most interesting differences in book and movie at this point is that is this attack because... The movie just kind of plays it off as like this a riot, this vicious. I mean, yeah, like a riot, but like it feels more like an attack, like yeah. a, an organized kind of vicious attack, like mm-hmm. not even like um, people celebrating. You yeah. know what I mean? Uh, so it's scary in one way, but the book, I think, is more disturbing because these Death Eaters, as they're doing this with this family, yeah. there's kind of like laughter mm-hmm. and like people are still celebrating and like laughing at what's going kind on. Of maybe some people going along with it. Yeah. yeah. And it, it feels like more unsettling because it feels like these people who have, you know, these former Death Eaters who were kind of never caught 
feeling like emboldened for whatever reason or another and Mm -hmm. kind of like acting out Mm -hmm. and seeing how many other people who like aren't death eaters but are like going along with it or like are just willing to like accept it yeah and i don't know something about this just feels so i think relevant to right now i think like at least in the u.s like the political landscape we've seen Mm -hmm. um white supremacy yeah white supremacy just kind of like feeling more emboldened to kind of come out of the woodwork kind of like, like test the waters a bit yeah kind of put their beliefs on display and like it's become violent people have died from it Mm -hmm. but like I got a really similar feeling reading this part in the book yeah it was very disturbing and like uh Arthur Weasley and some of his sons go off to try to like stop this there's also like kind of some fires breaking out there's a little bit more chaos um not as much as the movie though um and so harry uh ron and hermione kind of all get separated at this point and then we see uh the dark mark appear in the sky yeah and harry at first doesn't even know what this is but it's a symbol of voldemort and he used to like leave it in the sky after like murdering a bunch of people yeah i really loved in the book uh ron's dad has to kind of explain to him its significance And once again, like kind of tying into relevant events, like it'd be like having to explain like the swastika or something to a young kid who's just like, oh, it's just like, what is that? I don't, you know what I mean? But Mm -hmm. like, it's like understanding like the relevance of symbols and the fear that they can cause in people, I think uh, was interesting to read about at this point. Yeah. What was not interesting to read about (laughs) is the absolute shit show that happens after the dark mark goes into the sky because like Harry is nearby And then, like, a bunch of wizards show up, and Mr. Crouch is there, and Mr. Diggory, and then and Mr. Weasley, and they're all like, you did it, and they try to, like, throw curses at Ron and Hermione and Ron, and Harry, and then they find Winky there, and then it's Harry's wand, and then they're like, who, what? I don't know. It's so confusing. It's so convoluted, and here's the thing, is that, like, Harry, Ron, and Hermione heard the person who cast the spell, yeah. right? Uh, I forget what the spell is called, but like to cast the dark mark. Then when Winky's found, like it is four pages of them <laughs> arguing about whether Winky did it. And I'm like, Harry, can Harry please speak up? Because like clearly they would Winky know. Winky has a different voice. Yeah, yeah. They would know if it was Winky who like cast the fucking spell. And like eventually it's brought up. But like, I don't know. This part is so drawn out. It's so just like unnecessary and kind of boring. It is. And like ultimately at the end. Frustrating. Of it, frustrating. And like at the end of it, you're like, what was any of this about? Like. I know. And. Um, All they had to do was be like, yeah, we don't know who put the dark mark up in the air. But it definitely wasn't the fucking house elf. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. I don't know. It's one person accusing another, accusing another. And just like too many characters not interesting no this part was like really unnecessary yeah i agree after the uh the whole clusterfuck though at the (laughs) uh, quidditch world cup though uh ron harry and hermione are pretty quickly off to uh hogwarts on the uh, jesus christ i almost said the polar express (laughs) the the hogwarts jesus i'm i'm all over the place right now um they're off to school on the hogwarts express (laughs) They get to Hogwarts and they quickly find out that this is going to be a very special year because um, they are going to have the Triwizard Tournament, which involves um, 
other schools coming and having like a magical tournament where they compete and like decide which school is the best. I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just all the schools come in a huge gang fight. That's yes. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. But uh, it's kind of this like tournament that was resurrected from years ago because pe- too many people were dying in it that they canceled it. And they're like, you know, we should bring back that tournament that killed a lot of kids. Lots of children, right? <laughs> yeah. People remember that fondly, right? Yes. And this is where um, one of our recurring segments come back, which is Dumbledore's dick moves. We find out pretty quickly that Quidditch for the year is canceled. Like the only sport they play yeah. that I'm sure... Many kids were like excited about and looking forward to mm-hmm. like they don't find out till they get to school like, hey, no one gets to play Quidditch so that one person from the entire school can compete, compete. in this one tournament. Yeah. And I was just thinking how like in the last um, book and movie, like Oliver Wood was like obsessed with winning yes. the World Cup. Can you imagine if this happened this year. If this was his senior like, year. He would have like jumped off of the tower. <laughs> he would have killed himself. <laughs> he would have like, it's crazy. But like, I don't know. There's a lot of things about the way, at least in the book, the the movie I think is smart about, I mean, it doesn't need to explain as much, but like yeah. in the book, they, a lot of this setup revolves around the fact that the Triwizard Tournament is a surprise. Yes. So that means you can't tell the students there's no Quidditch until they get there until they get there which sucks mm-hmm. also it means that like the students from the other schools weren't able to come until like classes had started for a whole month yeah because you couldn't tell them until they were already at school yeah exactly so like when those students come i imagine they took classes right like i have no idea it's never mentioned yeah but what the fuck else are those kids gonna do i know like that whole year so but, i mean like all the students that come from other schools are like in their seventh year basically yeah. so like none of them are in harry ron and hermione's classes so we don't know if they're going to classes but i would have appreciated a line or two that was yes. like they were in this class yeah <laughs> just clarify that they're taking classes that they're not just like chilling in their carriages or ship when they're like not competing and yeah eating. <laughs> but like in the book, though, that means that, like, they didn't get started on their classes until, like, a month into the school year. Yeah. So, I don't know. Just, like, a lot of these weird qualities to, like, how the tournament is set up revolve around it being a surprise. And I'm like, no one likes a surprise. No Just, one. like, don't. <laughs> also, wouldn't you want to hype it up? Yeah. Anyway. <laughs> we get two schools. Uh Bobattons? Bo- Bo- Bobattons. According to the film, Bobattons. Yes. And uh, Durmstrang. Durmstrang. Thank mm-hmm. you. In in the book, they're just two different schools, one from France, one from Bulgaria. Yeah. Or like northern. Yeah. Scandinavia, maybe. Uh, but in the film, it's a girl's school and a boy's school. Yeah. Which is really weird, especially their like entrances in the movie, because like the um, Bo, uh, Bo Batten's school. I keep wanting to say Bo Batons, but that's probably That's because it sounds better. And, you, <laughs> and you'd think it was would be Bo Batons. Um, either way, like the ladies come in and do like a weird sexy dance. <laughs> <laughs> and then the men come in, they're like, let's just pound our boom, staffs. Boom. Yeah. And I don't, it, it, it like reinforced weird gender roles that I wasn't comfortable with. Agreed. Also, I have to point out, Watching it, the whole um, Durmstrang performance with the sticks, there's kind of this weird, like, um, glowy movement effect on the sticks Uh that always felt weird to me. 
And looking at the the performance, I'm like, you know what? I bet this was super uninteresting or looked super lame uh, on film. And they're like, let's add like some extra effects. <laughs> it's really like they're just like wooden staffs. So the whole glow glow stick effect of them yeah. makes like no sense. Like I think originally they were just going to plan for like the sparks when they hit it or whatever mm-hmm. and the fire at the end. But like the whole glow stick thing with the staffs, I would bet. Fifty dollars. They did that in the editing room because they're like, "This we looks, need to make this more. Interesting. This looks really lame." <laughs> uh, but this is where Dumbledore announces the Triwizard Tournament and mm-hmm. reveals the Goblet of Fire. Yeah, and we're introduced, as is tradition, with this year's Defense Against the Dark Arts teacher, uh, Mad Eye Moody. Mad Eye Moody. Uh, in the film, he gets this really weird introduction where for some reason the ceiling just freaks out. Yeah, and he's, he teaches it a lesson. Yeah, <laughs> he puts it back in its place. Yeah, but he, so we find out a little bit about him. He used to be an auror, which um, is a job at the ministry to hunt down um, dark magic users, dark yeah. wizards. And he was very good at it, um, but lost a few limbs. Was he, though? <laughs> like, looking at his face. <laughs> he's, like, missing an eye, a yeah. leg, part of his nose. Yeah, he's been through it. I would um, say he was um, energetic about it. Yes. Like, who knows how, enthusiastic. like, enthusiastic. Like, who knows how good he was? <laughs> that's, that's so true. He could take a spell to the face, though, apparently. <laughs> he's become very paranoid in his old age. Um, and is notorious for like his eye, which can like see through anything and, um, his hip flask that he refuses to drink from anything else for fear that he'll be poisoned. Yeah. And he's played in the film by Brendan Gleeson, who, I mean, once again, when talking about the casting of these films, Oh, I know who else could be mad. I moody, but Brendan Gleeson, he's so good. Mm hmm. He gets the weird, like, twitchy, kind of, like, paranoid vibe, but, like, the anger and the... Yeah, the gruffness, but, like, the charm as well. Yeah, like, you're not... Like, you'd still want him to like you, you know what I mean? Like, he just does such a great job with this role. And he's apparently effective at his job uh, because he actually tries to teach the students how to resist um, the unforgivable curses. Uh, So we have this kind of um, very interesting classroom scene where he demonstrates the three unforgivable curses on a spider. And it's very interesting for a lot of reasons. One, because he is talking to like fourth years about this and Mm -hmm. kind of being like, you need to know, you need to be prepared. And also because it clearly has like a very traumatic effect on Neville. Yeah. In this uh, book and movie, we find out more about Neville. Yeah. um, That his parents, his dad was an horror Mm -hmm. and he and his mother were both tortured uh, because of it. And they ended up in like a magical psychiatric ward i forget what it's called uh yeah saint mungo's saint mungo's thank Mm -hmm. you but it's really sad and so like when he's watching mad eye do the uh torture curse on the spider it like really upsets him Mm -hmm. mad eye is actually very kind to neville yeah which is shocking because obviously this is not mad eye (laughs) um and is kind of like talks to him you know, gives him a book on plants and is like, I heard you're good in herbology. Like, you should pursue this. And, like, he also ends up encouraging Harry later on to become an Auror and yeah. also Ron as well. He gives a he gives a lot of good... I think it's Hermione. Oh, who, Hermione. Yeah, he gives a lot of good, like, <laughs> like uh, career advice to these yeah. young 
Yeah, students. Honestly, I think he had probably just as much of a positive impact on them as Lupin did. And <laughs> Arguably. it's not even Mad-Eye. I know. <laughs> Shh, we'll get to it. Of course it's Mad-Eye. What are you talking about? We also get a great scene in both the book and the movie where Mad-Eye turns uh, Malfoy into a ferret. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, this was, this was a great scene in both versions, I think. And I love that they keep the line where McGonagall's like, what are you doing? He's just like teaching as he's like floating the, yeah. the ferret up and down. Mm-hmm. Uh, but yeah, he quickly like um, gets on Harry's good side by kind of like defending him, taking his job seriously. Yeah. Uh, all those things. But yeah, just great character. Mm-hmm. I do hate, though, in the film when you get that uh, eye perspective. Yeah. I hate the zooming sound effect. Ugh. Like, it, we don't need digital. Are we in, like, a spy movie? Yeah. <laughs> I just really, it felt really out of place, um, just kind of in the Harry Potter. Un- I like that it's, like, an eye patch. Yeah. Because I think in the book, it's just, like, a big eyeball mm-hmm. in his face. Uh, so it kind of being more of an eye patch makes sense, but I didn't like the the sound effect. No. I wasn't about it. It's not great. No. <laughs> Let's talk about the Goblet of Fire, the, the title of this book. <laughs> and also, why is it the title? Like, I don't know why <laughs> of, it's the title. Of all the things in this story, the Goblet of Fire is just like a glorified bingo wheel. I think she was going to call it like... Harry Potter and like the Triwizard Tournament. Yeah. But according to something I read, she wanted it to sound more like a cup of destiny type thing. So okay. went with Goblet of Fire. Huh. Cause I always, it's so funny. Like when I would think back on this book, I always think the Goblet of Fire is the trophy. Oh yeah. You know, but I'm like, no, that's a different thing. The Goblet of Fire is just like, it spits out. It's like the name. Yeah. It's just like a lottery thing. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, uh, you know, you, you you write your name down and your school in the book and cross an age line that Dumbledore is drawn since only uh, those who are 17 and older can enter. Yeah. And, you know, we kind of get a single day where everyone's kind of approaching it, putting in their names. Mm-hmm. You get a great yeah. scene with the Weasley twins where they uh, take an age potion to try to put their names in. And I love the actors who play uh, the twins in the movies. <laughs> They're, They're great. so great. But it's a hilarious scene. They think they've done it, but then like they're spit back out and they have beards and they start like wrestling on the floor, which is like really <laughs> funny. Yeah. This movie, like not all of the jokes land with it. Like some of the humor kind of falls flat. But like I thought this scene uh, worked out really well. And I agree that the actors who play Fred and George are are excellent. I love them. Yeah. Uh, no one is surprised, though, when Harry Potter's name comes out of the goblet after the three champions are announced. So he's kind of like the fourth one. Yeah. And he completely ruined the whole branding of the Triwizard Tournament for the whole year. I know. They're like, we already printed the brochures. <laughs> like, we've got banners with Triwizard There's on it. There's three numbers everywhere. Yeah, they're like, God damn it, Harry, you completely fucked us on the branding. And I just want to say, okay, so the explanation <laughs> about how this could have happened is that someone who was over 17 put Harry's name in. And I'm like... Why wasn't everyone doing this? This is a huge loophole. Well, yeah, because like on one hand, they ask like Dumbledore is like, did you have an older student put your name in? Yeah. But then they're like, oh, someone really magical had to trick the goblet. But apparently all it takes to trick the goblet is one. Well, I guess it's not being over 17. Well, I guess that wasn't the goblet. That was the age line. The age line. But then they're like, "Uh, someone must have put a fake 
school name for Harry so it spit him out. And I'm like, that's all it took? Yeah. Was putting a fake, did someone like write Hogwarts with a Z on it? (laughs) (laughs) And the cop is like, oh, I guess that's the fourth person. I don't know. Yeah, I mean, so many, I mean, just the fact that Dumbledore asks, did you have an older student put your name in for you? It's like, I didn't know that was an option. Yes. Yeah, like clearly this was a very, easy thing to like work around like, yeah the goblet of fire is a very magical powerful item and i'm like i don't think so i think it's like a glorified excel spreadsheet that like <laughs> i know it, it's ridiculous honestly and then two is the whole that this whole idea that like harry is bound to like a magical contract now and has to compete which the um i, I don't know what you want to call them like the ramifications of like not doing it are not spelled out no. in any way for They're us. They're like, well, I guess you have to do it, but no one is like, well, what happens if I don't? Because, you know, the thing about a contract is that usually <laughs> there's, like, clauses or, like, yeah. uh, specifications consequences. or consequences that are, like, clearly detailed, like, somewhere. Yeah. But they're like, oh, no, it's... It's uh, that magical contract that you signed, remember? <laughs> <laughs> remember, like, we had you sign it, and then we wiped your memory so you would never remember signing it. <laughs> This introduces um, another manifestation of Dumbledore. Yes. Which we have liked to name um, for each movie, uh, starting with the third one. Yeah, all of Michael Gambon, uh, his portrayal of Dumbledore in each movie, starting from the third onward, each one has its own flavor, Yes, if you will. Um, we said book three, he was Dumblecoy. Yes. Because he's just very mysterious. like mysterious and kind of like winking a lot and that kind of, you know, vibe. But he's very different in this movie. And we're uh, nicknaming him uh, Dumbledun because <laughs> he's just fucking Dumbledun with everyone's crap. Oh, my God. He's tired of it. He's so And done. like sometimes this comes across as like rage and anger. Like yes. when he asks Harry about if he put his name in the Goblet of Fire. Mm-hmm. Other times he just has this like sense of, of just, like world weariness. Yes, of just <laughs> exasperation at like everyone else around him. I think this comes out a lot when Filch, who is in charge of the cannon, <laughs> keeps like setting off the cannon too early I, for the tasks. I do love that as an ongoing, <laughs> especially like the kickback of the cannon. Is I super- know. And Dumbledore just keeps looking over and being like, oh my God, are you <laughs> fucking kidding me? <laughs> also, one of my favorite moments, and it's like very odd, but it still cracks me up, is uh, right before the first task. Hermione is just kind of like in the tent. Oh, yeah. And when Dumbledore starts talking and he's like, what What are you doing here? What are you doing here, Miss Granger? Yeah. And she's like, uh, I'll, I'll go. <laughs> just gives her this look. Like, what, what are you doing? <laughs> uh, yeah, but like a very different vibe for Dumbledore from the previous movie. I like this, though. It's Dumbledore. Yes. And it's worth mentioning, I've already planned out the other Dumbledores for the other books. <laughs> However, all of the other ones have Ds. They're Dumbledore. Something. Yeah. Uh, but the third one is still Dumblecoy. So if anyone has an alternative name that has a D in it. Yeah. That, that describes his like kind of coyness in the third. Yeah. Movie, I'd love to hear please it. Please let us know. Because I really want the, the we Dumble. We need this to be consistent. We need the Dumble D's <laughs> to be consistent for the episodes. So please that. let us Dumble know. D. The Dumble D's. <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> Yes, right into us. Absolutely. Uh, yeah. So the Goblet of Fire, weird. Do we understand it? No. And, you know, I know a lot of things in the Harry Potter universe you can kind of like poke holes in. But I yeah. feel like with this book in particular, there were a number of things yeah. that I'm like, 
this is kind of a big gaping plot hole that I kind of feel like needs to be addressed <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> yeah, considering there's like 730 pages yeah. in this book. I, I always say that about big books. I'm like, there's no reason for this thing to not be explained. <laughs> yeah, like, you, had so, so much you had time. so much time. Cut the Dursley bits. <laughs> We had, like, six pages of people accusing each other in the woods over nothing. Yeah. Like, just explain what the contract is. Exactly. Harry's name, though, being drawn from the goblet kind of puts him in a weird position with the school. Yeah. Because, like, a lot of people think he kind of, like... Cheated. Cheated and duped everyone. He's kind of, like, screwing up the whole thing. Even a lot of, like, the teachers or the ambassadors from the other schools. Yeah. Um, But also uh, with Ron and his relationship with Ron... um, Ron doesn't seem to believe that he didn't do it and is kind of pissed about it because he didn't tell Ron, apparently. Yeah. And this kind of begins like a feud with them for a section of this story. Yeah. And this lasts for a while. And it's interesting in the book, Hermione kind of talks to Harry about it and explains what Ron might be feeling. Mm -hmm. And she's like, listen, Ron is like the youngest out of all of these brothers who are like, you know, doing all these, like, well-known and important things. And, and competing. Then, yeah, and then he has you for a best friend, and you're, like, so famous, so he feels like he gets no attention, and then for you to get this, too, it's kind of like the last straw for him. Yeah, and but then Harry, on the other hand, is like, I don't want any of this. He's like, yeah. everyone I meet, like, stares at my forehead, like, it's so tiring, mm-hmm. and, like... He's kind of he's mad, too, and mad that like Ron can't wouldn't believe him. wouldn't believe him. And so I actually think that, like, even though it's kind of like teenage angsty a bit, like, I do think the book actually justifies this feud pretty well. Yeah. And I think this is kind of a natural point in their friendship, mm-hmm. kind of having um, an episode where there was some mistrust and like antagonism between them. And I do like how it resolves pretty quickly. Like, it's not yeah. too long. Like, after the first task is done, Ron is immediately like, I should have, like, known. And they make up pretty quickly. Yeah. And <laughs> they're in the movie, I like their the makeup scene. Even though I didn't like the feud as much in the movie, the scene where they're kind of, like, yeah, being really dumb. And Hermione's just watching them. And I think she's just, like, boys. Because <laughs> Harry and Ron's friendship is like the embodiment of like yeah male friends like in high school like cannot be emotionally honest or vulnerable with each other for like two seconds (laughs) (laughs) preparing for this first task um harry gets some help from hagrid who shows him that it's supposed to be dragons and then from moody who kind of makes the connection with harry that like maybe you do what you're good at, which is Quidditch. <laughs> <laughs> How can you make this Quidditch? Exactly. That's, that's what Harry should be asking himself for all these tasks. I mean, that's what that's what my note for like the first task is Quidditch. Turn it into Quidditch. <laughs> and this is how we get Quidditch, Harry on a broom, in this book where Quidditch is canceled. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but it's this whole task where they have to... Um, get a uh, golden egg from a dragon that's protecting it. Yeah. And the book keeps it all within the arena, mm-hmm. which makes sense for the book. Yeah. Uh, the movie decides to kind of like break out of the arena and kind of have this wild chase scene around Hogwarts. Yeah, I think this works well. And I actually think, you know, the CGI dragon is awesome. It's super good. Like compared to like the other moments like we talked yeah. about that aren't as solid, like the dragon's pretty spectacular. They put all their money in the dragon. <laughs> <They did. laughs> 
And I mean, it shows the dragon part was really cool. And I like the um, pacing of it, too. I really like when Harry kind of gets stuck on the roof. Yeah. And just kind of him like kind of the awkwardness of it, him trying to like grab just, his broom. Yeah. Not fall. And the dragon's kind of like shimmying mm-hmm. like across the roof. Like I I get wanting to make this like a bigger, more spectacular thing for the film. And I, yeah. I think they did a good job with I it. I think it works well. Yeah. Let's take a break from the Triwizard Tournament and talk about the enslavement of house elves. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh uh, what can we say about this? Um, First of all, Ian brought up something very interesting that I didn't even notice. Yeah. So, I mean, you know, the house elves thing isn't new to us. You know, we were introduced to house elves in the second book with through Dobby. Yeah. And, you know, we understand that like house elves are like basically slaves. Uh, they often serve like big families, you know, like old wizarding families. Yeah. And they're at least Dobby was clearly abused. But then again, Dobby belonged to the Malfoys. So, you know, yeah. he's not going to be treated well. <laughs> no. Um. But, you know, Dobby refers to himself in the third person a lot. Then we're introduced in this book to Winky, the house elf, Mm -hmm. Crouch's elf. And Winky sometimes refers to herself in third person, other times not. Yeah. But something suddenly stuck out to me when the third person thing wasn't involved. And that is that the kind of broken English that Winky speaks in sounds very much like uh, kind of a characterization of like, slave talk yeah from like you know the 1800s or like like uh generalizing like black people talking in like the jim crow era yeah or just immigrants learning another language yeah and especially when you hear winky like uh justifying like you know saying how much she loves her master and that like you know she has to serve him and she cares about him like turning her into like this uncle tom stereotype yeah like Clearly, the whole house elf being slaves things is like very like on the nose is like a slave metaphor, you know, already. But then to like layer on this like happy slave, happy slave, kind of like the broken English they speak. Yeah, like it's it's kind of really bad. It's really fucked up. I was reading that there's some theories that like the house elves were kind of based on like um, the lore of like brownies. Um, which mm. were like creatures that inhabited like houses and would like clean for you. And like you were supposed to leave out like food for them, but never close because that means like they would leave. Oh, interesting. Okay. But I think obviously Rowling took this a little too far and went with like, okay, what if they were like slaves? Okay, what if they liked being slaves? <laughs> and then we have Hermione who is understandably like horrified by this. And in fact, when she finds out that there's tons of house elves who cook and clean in Hogwarts, she's also like, I can't believe I've been participating in this like structural oppression. Yeah. Basically. But like nobody else cares. And we're kind of meant to like think that Hermione's being stupid and that she's doing something that the house elves don't even want. But, like, no one seems to really care. And even, I think the worst part is that Harry doesn't care. Yes. Of all people, Harry, who freed Dobby in the second book and saw firsthand, like, how traumatized Dobby was. Yeah, and Harry, who was treated so poorly by his relatives and treated kind of like a servant, you know, by them, 
to just not give a fuck. I mean, Ron, we're led to believe, has sort of been brought up in this like doctrine and that like households are happy and they like what they're doing. So we're supposed to kind of understand why he believes it. I still think it's shitty because he's like very mean to Hermione about it. Oh my God. It, it, it's so, and yeah, the book just poses it like Ron is actively against Hermione and then Harry just like, I don't know, this book really drew my attention to what a non-character Harry is at points. I know. Like he's he, just there. Yeah. Whenever Ron and Hermione are arguing about something, especially something Harry should give a shit about and doesn't say anything about, like he really just shows how like he's only there for his own plot lines and like doesn't really care about no. anyone else at all. Um, Yeah. But like the whole setup just feels like even though the whole stance of slavery is bad <laughs> should be like, I, I mean, know. such an easy <laughs> message to portray well in a book or at least like be on the right side of like the book ultimately feels like it's making Hermione out to be like uh, misguided naive yeah yeah or like misguided or like not understanding other cultures and it's like yeah there can be like cultural differences but like slavery is not like a cultural difference even Hagrid, yeah, who like loves all creatures, is like, oh, they like doing this. Like, yeah, it's it's just weird. It, I don't like the way that this is handled. No, at all. and it goes nowhere. And that's ultimately like, I I don't like. I wouldn't care so much about like the bad um, portrayal of house elves as slaves if this story had a good message about it. You know, I'd be like, it's unfortunate, but yeah. and I wouldn't even care about Harry and Ron dismissing her if it led to them. Like realizing they were in the wrong and like they should care about this or yeah, or being involved in any way. But like ultimately, like Hermione's made out to be like crazy. And then that plot line is dropped. Totally dropped. It goes nowhere. Yeah, it's just it's just unfortunate. And I am not cool with it. And I don't think it gets better in this series. So, yeah, I know elves still like appear like new elves and like appear in different roles. And I kind of like don't remember how that's addressed, but like. Even if it got better in other books, it should be addressed well in this one. And it's totally not. Yeah. Speaking of other kind of like problems in the wizarding world, we are introduced to Rita Skeeter, who is this um, very snoopy investigative reporter (laughs) who writes for the Daily Prophet. And she just loves like finding out secrets about people. She likes a good scoop. Yeah. And like also kind of very um, misleadingly writing articles that are like kind of not true. But she does find out that Hagrid is half giant and Ron is the one that's kind of giving us the knowledge about the wizarding world and how giants are very um, kind of just viewed as like really evil, like like savages, savages. Yeah, just not trusted and how damaging this is to Hagrid's reputation. Um, But we really we get this really great scene, though, in the book where like Hermione, Ron, and Harry go to visit Dump or to visit Hagrid. Yeah, but Dumbledore's, Dumbledore's there. Dumbledore's there. And Hagrid's just like really torn up about all of this. And Dumbledore's there kind of like trying to like, you know, help encourage him, him, encourage him. And so are Ron, Harry, and Hermione. And it's like, it's really sad because Hagrid gets to talk about his dad. Yeah. We find out his dad died when he was like pretty young, still mm-hmm. in school. And you know, he's upset because like Dumbledore and him are getting like really nasty letters as a result of this uh, article. And Dumbledore kind of gives him like a great little piece of advice or like help where he's just like, you know, he's like, I 
could tell you about all the letters I get that like are saying how great you are and if I sack you that like people will never forgive me Mm -hmm. and Hagrid's like yeah but you still get bad letters too and Dumbledore's like I've literally been getting nasty letters since I started working here and it's like if I bothered with them or cared about them like let them stop me yeah I'd never get anything done I love this scene because it is a very tender moment between Dumbledore and Hagrid and then you know Ron Harry and Hermione kind of come in and like support that and they're like please come back to work Hagrid like we want you we don't care you know yeah this doesn't matter to us and I and I just love this this is file this under uh Hagrid is the best yeah we love him just my favorite character I think just like the best example of tender masculinity and yeah like, and kindness. finding out about his history and I think it just only adds to his character yeah I lo- this is one of my favorite parts of the book definitely a highlight yeah Let's switch to um, finding dates for the Yule Ball. <laughs> the, I love that this, because in the book, there's chapters, you know, the first task, the second task, the third task. And this chapter is the unexpected task. Yes. <laughs> which was really funny. Uh, but Harry and Ron suddenly have to find dates to the Yule Ball. Yeah. And my God, if... This is painful. It, it just taps into... That panic. Adolescent memories. Adolescent panic. <laughs> <laughs> the adolescent sweats. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, there's just like a lot of um, kind of like funny parts in this. Uh, you know, Harry... <laughs> we just have to talk about that scene in the movie where Harry's looking at Cho. Yeah. And then he like spits out the juice in his mouth. <laughs> know what it is about that moment like it oh just, my god it's un- unexpected yeah and it just kills me it's so <laughs> funny uh we also get another funny scene where ron and it's similar in bookend movie ron is like i, I don't i don't know what you want it like dazed yeah because he like unexpectedly even to himself asked fleur out to the ball yeah and like i love you know hermione's like well she didn't say yes and like Ron kind of shakes his head and she's like, she said yes. And he's like, no, are you, are you daft? <laughs> and it was just like, I ran away before she could answer. <laughs> yeah, it's just like funny how like Ron and Harry are just so like traumatized by this experience and <laughs> yeah. are clearly like having a tough time. Um, Hermione's already going with someone else. So eventually Ron and Harry end up asking and going with um, uh, Parvati and Padma Patil. Yeah, uh, so, you know, they get their dates and they get to go to the Yule Ball. And that's where we find out that uh, Hermione is going with Victor Crumb. Yes, and she's definitely drawn to him because he's the only man in the school with short hair. <laughs> <laughs> I love this This I take. just have to say, it's though. It's so, I mean, we haven't talked about the hair. No. You have to talk about the hair when you talk about uh, this movie. It's so bad. Across yeah. the board. It's so bad. Everyone has this hair. And I mean, like, something something about it is kind of funny and true that, like, around this time, or maybe a little younger, like, in high school, like, a lot of guys, like, I know I did. I grew my hair out when I was, like, yeah. uh, 13 or maybe 14. <laughs> it kind of looked like Harry's, honestly. But, like, <laughs> yeah, it was just something that, like, I think a lot of dudes do, like, around this age. However, yeah. I mean, you still have... Like, it's so many. It's Harry, Ron, Neville, Fred, and George. Yeah. All just decide to grow their hair out this yeah. movie. It's and not great. None it's of it's good. It's not a good look for anyone. Yeah. And so I think that's why Hermione ultimately decided to go to the ball <laughs> with like, Victor Crumb. short his hair is. I know. There's almost nothing there. <laughs> Unfortunately, though, Ron is very shitty to her um, in both the book and the movie. And it kind of implies that 
Crumb is only going with her to like get dirt on Harry and that he wouldn't want to go with her otherwise and that she's like kind of a fool and he's using her. And this is just so mean to her because she's just there to have a good time. And she looks great. She looks amazing. She's just trying to like, she's not even that into Crumb. She's just kind of like, oh, I just wanted to like meet someone from another school and like talk to them. And Ron is just like a huge dick. And so I hate him. Ron is really bad this movie. Yeah. In the movie, he has like lines that are very creepy. Like he talks about liking to look at girls when they walk away. Um, And then when he and uh, Hermione have this fight, he says something to Harry like they get scary when they get older. Kind of like implying that any like emotional reaction she had to what Ron was saying to her was like crazy. And that she's being yeah. crazy. Ugh. Yeah. It's really, it's sexist. It's like just feeding into a bunch of stereotypes. It's just bad overall. And you know, like, yes, he's 14. And like a lot of 14 year olds are like fucking stupid and like have backwards views. I, I get that to a degree. But like Ron is kind of just like he's, he's not really caught, called out on it, though. No. And he's either just like baseline, like like there in the book and movie or he's being awful. And like Harry doesn't defend Hermione at all. No, this goes back to Harry just like being a non-person. Yeah, he's like, uh, this doesn't really involve me. (laughs) So I'm just like gonna like let you two. Wait, is this about Quidditch? No? Okay, I don't care. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he just like doesn't give a shit and it's just like very annoying. It's disappointing. It is. Uh, Hermione just deserves better because Hermione is awesome and better than everyone else. We also have to talk about yes, the song. <laughs> yes, the, the band. The band, and this it, has members of the band uh, Pulp and uh, what's the other band? <laughs> so uh, Johnny Greenwood, who's the guitarist of Radiohead. Yeah, and another member of Radiohead is also there. Yeah, and <laughs> J- Jarvis Cocker. Yes, from uh, Pulp. It, yeah, is is the singer. And oh my God, like this song was so clearly like they were like, hey, can you just write like the most generic, uh, magical themed like rock song that like. So that like the teens can just like jump up and down on the dance floor. Yeah, just like the (laughs) most generic lines. Just name drop every magical creature you can think of. Oh, it's so dumb. It's so fucking lame. It's so jarring too. Because it starts out with like the fancy dancing and then it's like, here are the teens like having a good time. (laughs) (laughs) And you know. Yeah, it just doesn't fit in the Harry Potter universe. And on top of that, like, it kind of draws... This is, like, the highlight. In fact, the whole Yule Ball is kind of... Highlights one of my issues with this movie. And honestly, the book, too, to a degree. But mostly the movie. That out of all the Harry Potter movies, this one feels the most like... uh, What about high school, but magic? (laughs) You know? Yeah. Where it's like suddenly like the teen drama and the hormones are kind of like turned up. Yeah. And like a lot of, I, I, I don't know, it just feels very high schooly in a way that like none of the other movies really feel. Yeah. Like obviously it's about like kids, adolescents growing up. Like there are like romances and like funny moments and mm-hmm. things like that. But like this one felt the most like magical high school. <laughs> Here's our sweet song. Yeah, I just, I don't love this scene. What I do love in the movie, though, is getting to see Neville have a good time. And yeah. he goes to the ball with Ginny. And, like, it, there's no, like, romantic stuff between mm-hmm. them. It just seems like he's having a good year. And I'm really happy for Neville. 
<laughs> Neville's probably the only one who had a good year. Yeah. <laughs> like, like years from now, they'll be like, oh my God, remember our fourth year? That was so terrible. And Neville's like the only one like, I don't know. I thought it was pretty dope. I had a great time. <laughs> I love that for him. I do too. So now we go to the second task and Harry is woefully unprepared. <laughs> and I kind of like in the book how panicked he is about this. Like you really get a sense of like the sheer panic that he's feeling. It's so relatable though, because he had so much time to do this yeah. that he kept being like, I have uh, so much time to do this. Like we've all done projects or have put off projects yes. until the last minute that we had like so much time to do. And then suddenly you're like, oh my God, I'm going to die. And you're like, I'm in a nightmare. Like, what do I even do? He talks a lot about how time like starts to go faster and <laughs> yeah. it like really troubles him. I mean, he figures out from a clue from Cedric that he should open his egg in the water. We get a weird, creepy scene with Moaning Myrtle, like being a peeping Tom. <laughs> it's know. uncomfortable for everyone. It's a little weird. Uh, it is, oh my God, like Harry's like, Honestly, so dumb in this one, like so helpless. He is really dumb. Like Cedric's like, why don't you take it into like the bath with you? And Harry's like, okay. And then he like opens the egg like outside of the water. He's like, that didn't work. And he's like, that didn't work. <laughs> and then Moaning Myrtle's like, why don't you put it in the water? And so he does that. Yeah. And then in the book, she has to be like, why don't you stick your head in the water? <laughs> like, Do anything. <laughs> Even though he figures this out through Moaning Myrtle and Cedric. He still doesn't know how he's going to like breathe underwater for this task. And literally it's to, it's down to the last second. Like he falls asleep in the library <laughs> and like has to run to the task cause he's late. Um, and it's a little bit different in the book and the movie in the movie. Neville is the one who gives him the gillyweed and in the book it's Dobby. Yeah. Uh, and so he gets the gillyweed and in the book, though, this highlighted another issue because, like, Harry was, like, before he had a solution, he's like, my God, I'm going to have to, like, tell the judges I can't do it. I'm going to have to forfeit. And I'm like, that's... Is this an option? Is that an option? <laughs> like, because so I thought you were under a magical contract, but if you can just be like, hey, I don't want to do this thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, what are the rules here? <laughs> what are the I rules? need to know. But so Harry gets the gillyweed and he gets to um, the lake in time uh, and the... It also, you know, Hermione and Ron have been kidnapped and are being held underwater. You know what happens. How? That is so weird and fucked up. This I part. know, I know. Like, it literally could have been anything. Yeah. Like, or just like a dummy or something. Just but, fetch anything and, down there. And like, the song implies that like, they will die if they don't get help. And like, then later everyone's like, Harry, you idiot. Dumbled Why would you believe that? Dumbledore wasn't going to let them die. Why would you believe that? He's like, I don't know. Cause he told me basically. <laughs> yeah. Cause you were like underwater and I was worried you wouldn't be able to breathe. Um, I feel like the only thing that this task really accomplishes that Fleur like likes Harry now. <laughs> yeah. Cause he like kind of saves her sister. Yeah. He, he gets both, uh, Fleur's sister and Ron out of the water, which gets him like double points. Uh, I also have to point out, I love in the film that <laughs> as Harry takes the, eats the gillyweed and starts his like transformation, <laughs> Mad-Eye <laughs> just like shoves him into the water. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if it's like the shot that's kind of like this zoom as Harry falls in, but like something about it just kills me. It's so funny. It's so funny. We have like a really weird cut though in the movie where suddenly like Harry, Ron, and Hermione are walking with Hagrid in the forest. Yeah, because like Harry talks to Mr. Crouch 
after the second task, right? Yeah. And then Mr. Crouch, like, after an encounter with Mad-Eye, kind of, like, walks away. Yeah. And then it cuts to, like, dusk. Yeah. And, and we're the, like, what's happening? Yeah, and we're There's like, no context. are they still walking away? And then they stumble upon the body of Mr. Crouch. Yeah. And I'm like, did he die in, like, the two-second span that, that you, like... we looked away? Yeah. It's not clear. I, I feel like it's a poor editing choice here. I feel like something was cut or something got shifted in the editing of this that, like, made it awkward. Yeah, definitely. It's different in the book. Uh, Barty Crouch shows up and he's been kind of like absent this whole book and like kind of ill and so hasn't been showing up to work. But when he comes to Hogwarts, he's kind of like raving and going off and he sounds like there's something wrong with him. And Harry kind of like runs to get Dumbledore. But by the time they get back, um, he's disappeared. Yeah. And Crumb was knocked out and it's kind of this like mysterious. Yeah. This other mystery kind of going on. And um, I think it's interesting in the movie that we see Mad-Eye Moody kind of like doing this like lick lipping thing. <laughs> yeah, his lizard uh, tongue. Yes, because later on when we are in the Pensieve, we see um, Barty Crouch Jr. doing this exact same thing. So I think the movie actually makes it possible to make the connection on your own, whereas I actually don't feel like you could put this together on your own in the book. Yeah, I, I agree. And I think the movie does a good job of putting more hints throughout. Like, there's a couple mentions of Polyjuice Potion being brewed in the school. Yes. Which is another good hint. Like, oh, someone here isn't who they say they are, maybe. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so, like, I think the movie does a good job of, like, sprinkling in some more hints. Uh, and I kind of wish that the book did that more. I totally agree. Uh, should we talk about Sirius yeah, a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I just want to, like... <clears throat> He has a pretty minor role in this book compared to like the last book, but I do just want to mention how important having Sirius now um, in his life is for Harry. Yeah. And this is more addressed in the book, but Harry kind of talks about like at the beginning when his scar hurts and he has that dream, he doesn't know what to do or like who to talk to. He feels silly turning to Dumbledore. He doesn't want to talk to his friends because like he knows they won't understand. Then he's suddenly like... I can talk to Sirius. Yeah. And like for the first time in his life, he kind of has like a parent guardian figure to like ask advice from. And to confide in. Yeah. And, and Sirius, I love that he's like very dedicated to helping Harry. I know. Like he kind of like shows up at Hogsmeade uh, when, you know, this stuff starts going on at school. He wants to be like actually closer to Harry. Yeah. Um, Harry gets to actually see him there. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, I, I don't know. It, it's just like we get the one scene in the film where we see Gary Oldman's <laughs> Fireface uh, fire face <laughs> for like a short scene. Yeah. Which, by the way, that effect, I love it. It's, it's so really weird. Cool. Yeah, it's like very interesting and I think it's pretty neat. Um, but yeah, very brief cameo by Gary Oldman in the film. But like mm-hmm. he has much more of a presence in the fourth book, which I really appreciate. Yeah, I think it just is showing us how valuable this is to Harry yeah. and how he's never had this. And there's a scene too, like in the book towards the end when Harry's like super traumatized by everything that happened and Mrs. Weasley like embraces him oh. and he talks about how he's never had like the embrace and the, like the hug of like a mother. That is the single saddest thing I've ever read in a book. Literally, I like almost cried because I was like, oh my God, Harry hasn't had anyone just hold him. You know what I mean? <laughs> no. Anyone just like show him love. And I mean, that's like some serious like emotional development, like neglect for like a child to not have yeah. that. Um, 
And like, you can grow up and like have like some major stuff like wrong with you for not being like loved and just touched. Um, so it was just like super impactful. I think in this book to see Harry with his like chosen family, you know, yeah, Sirius Black as mm-hmm. his godfather. And then the Weasleys who've clearly like adopted him. I love the Weasleys role in, in the franchise, just like kind of their warm nature, kind of like the, chaoticness of them having so many kids and like the burrow and it kind of being like all like ramshackled together happy place yeah and it's just like really wonder i remember in this book i think it's the night before they leave for hogwarts they're kind of like sitting around the fire Mm -hmm. and just like reading about it was so like heartwarming uh, like it was like de-stressing you know what i I mean to like read about (laughs) i know it's just wholesome it is uh one other thing though I have to mention about the serious thing is like a lot of time is given to explaining Harry having to send Hedwig with like letters, but then he can't send Hedwig anymore because he's too obvious. So he has to like rotate other owls. Yeah. And this is weird to me because this is another thing that I was like, I don't want to nitpick like a bunch of holes in this plot, but I'm like, how is it that like any this man on the run? can be found by literally any owl, like, in the world. Yeah. Um, All you have to do is send him a letter and then follow the owl. Yeah. But, like, the entire wizarding government is like, how do we find this guy? (laughs) Like, I don't know. It starts to get, like, a little silly, and I'm kind of like... And I think it could have been resolved pretty easily. Just, like, say, like, oh, Hedwig knew how to find him because of, like, A, B, and C or something like that. I don't know. But, like, the (laughs) idea that, like, just any owl can find Sirius. It's funny. It is. (laughs) Harry ends up in Dumbledore's office because he wants to tell him about another, like, scar-hurting episode. And then finds himself drawn into the Pensieve, um, yes. which shows us memories. And these are clearly Dumbledore's memories. And we see a few different like courtroom scenes, which are combined into one in the mm-hmm. movie version. But we see um, Karkov, Karakov. Karkarov? Karkarov. The head of Durmstrang. Yes, um, who was a former Death Eater, kind of exposing some other Death, e- Death Eaters. We find out not only was he a Death Eater, Snape was a former Death Eater, yep. who kind of turned and, you know, came over to Dumbledore's side. And then we also find out that uh, Barty Crouch's son was a Death Eater. Yeah, and this is kind of, I think it was mentioned before, but like this is kind of like us getting to actually see this drama unfold. Yeah. And understanding that like Barty Crouch Sr. was like really vying at this point in his career for the position of Minister of Magic at some point. Yeah. And so he was like really ruthless to his own son who wasn't even like, no one even was like certain he was a Death Eater, but like the mere association he had with Death Eaters and like being like found among them was like, too much for Barty Crouch Sr. And so he really kind of like hung his son out to dry. Hung, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Hung him out to dry and kind of like handed him over to Azkaban and was like, hey, sorry. And in the book, we find out he died very shortly after, like a year later yeah. in being in Azkaban. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, kind of this like really harsh kind of like history finding out about Crouch in that way. Yeah, I agree. All right, we're at the third task. So 
Harry is much less nervous about this one because they know immediately it's going to be like this maze and he'll just have to like fight off random like obstacles in the maze. And Harry's like, oh, I got this. I like had all those obstacles in the first my first year at Hogwarts, I had to go through all those puzzles and like fight those magical yeah. creatures. He's like, I'll be fine. He's like, this is my zone. I got yeah. this. Uh, yeah. And so the it's this huge hedge maze and we just know there's going to be things in it. And it's kind of funny, the differences in book and movie, because the book is like there's creatures and yeah. like spells, enchantments, like riddles mm-hmm. like kind of a wide variety of things that were like all very interesting to read about yeah um the movie though is just like the shrubs are angry <laughs> and that's like well they were like pine trees wasn't that weird yeah they were yeah like they were pine li- shrubs yeah uh but they're angry yes they're they're very mad <laughs> <laughs> like they're windy and they got like the roots coming out and they're like the roots besides yeah. that like apparently like the maze can like fuck with your head but like that's kind of it and i i don't mean to be like shitting on it or anything because no. i think it actually works pretty well in the film mm-hmm. um it kind of being more reduced uh but then we also get like an in, uh what's the word uh crumb who's uh not vexed um you know that that curse? You're just nodding at me. I'm like, help me. Oh, uh, the Imperio. <laughs> yeah, yeah, mm-hmm. controlled. Yeah. Um, we, were, we were like coming up with two different, very different. I'm like, Imperio, and you're like, controlled. <laughs> <laughs> we both came up with the same word. Uh, yeah, so Crumb kind of attacks them, um, but like Cedric and Harry both escape mm-hmm. and both kind of come to the cup at the same time. And the hedge is getting even angrier. So they're like, we got to get out of here before the hedges get us. Yeah. So they both agree to um, both grab the cup at the same time. So that they'll tie. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And this is when it is revealed to us that the cup is a port key. Yes. And they're taken to a creepy old cemetery (laughs) where nothing good has ever happened in a cemetery at night no and nothing good continues to happen um almost like immediately before they can even react uh cedric is killed and we see that wormtail is there with uh horrifying baby voldemort (laughs) i just want to like impress upon you how horrifying this is the best is the shot of when wormtail dumps Ugh baby Voldemort in the cauldron and there's even like a like a yell he's like (laughs) he goes in it is not great it's not a good time for anyone Harry is like trapped they take Harry's blood for this potion to bring Voldemort's body back I do love the elements of this yes the bone of the father like unwillingly taken Mm -hmm. the yeah unknowingly taken uh, unknowingly and then uh the the Hand of a servant. Yes, it blood. Flesh of a servant. Flesh of the, yeah, willingly spared, whatever. And it's kind of a creepy old ass feeling spell or potion that's really cool. Yeah. And then we get real Voldemort manifesting uh, in the flesh. And this is pretty intense. And I think both the book and the movie do a good job of showing us how like kind of really horrifying this scene is you know we're just in, like in the triwizard tournament everything's like fine and then suddenly like harry thinks he's gonna die yeah and harry's like reaction i love like when he they he sees uh voldemort dropped in the cauldron he's like let it drown like let it drown and then yeah. like even as it's coming back he's like please say it died like it didn't like 
what like whatever this thing is is just like terrifying to him. Mm-hmm. A bunch of Death Eaters show up. We find out that uh, shockingly to no one, uh, Malfoy's father, Crab and Goyle's uh, parents, <laughs> yeah. and some other people are actually Death Eaters. Yeah, and we get to enjoy the energy and the aura that is Ray Fiennes in the role of Voldemort. I cannot imagine anyone else playing this role. He's phenomenal. And I mean, Voldemort, for like all intents and purposes, like is kind of boring. Oh, yeah. He's just like... He doesn't have any reason to do anything. He's just like, I'm evil. He's just power hungry and is just like... Obsessed with not dying. That's like his only... Yeah, and he's just evil, like incarnate. But like Ray Fiennes... I mean, just choose up scenery in this scene. He has such a mixture of evil, but like funniness. Yeah. Like, I like what you said about joy. Like, he just takes joy in being Voldemort. Like, he (laughs) just loves, he just loves it. And like, he's kind of got this like elegance to him. I love movements. Yeah. I love when the smoke becomes his robes because they are very like thin and flowy. And I love that he never wears shoes. He's always barefoot. Yeah. Um, But he just delivers so many lines. There's one line. It's such a throwaway line when he acknowledges Harry's there. Mm -hmm. And he's like, he's like, I almost forgot you were here standing on the bones of my father. (laughs) (laughs) And the line, especially when he's like, I can touch you now as he presses his finger into Harry's fort. Like, yeah, just every line. He just like relishes it. You know what I mean? I really like it. And this is a great first appearance by him. And we have so much more to look forward to with um, scenes with Voldemort, which is exciting. He challenges Harry to a duel. And Harry's like, okay, I'm going to die. And literally faces Voldemort being like, all right, he's going to kill me. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when they throw their curses at each other, one the killing curse and one this disarming curse, their wands connect. And then we see this like weird phenomenon happen where the spells kind of come out of Voldemort's wand mm-hmm. that he did before. So we see kind of like the ghost or like the shadow of Cedric And eventually of Harry's parents as well. Yeah, it's a pretty emotional moment. I really want to call out, though, um, in terms of, like, the special effects of this scene. Yeah. The effect of the wand streams Connecting. connecting and it being, like, this plasma discharge, like, this almost kind of, like, foamy, yes, liquidy. I love that so much because... It doesn't feel like anything else I've seen in a movie. Yeah. Like this kind of representation of like, like they could have easily just made it look like lightning. Lasers. Or lasers. <laughs> but the fact that it has like this kind of liquidiness. Um, and I feel like this is, uh, happens in other films too. Like both when Harry and Voldemort's wands connect and also in other moments as well. Yeah. And it just kind of gives like the visual style of the film's a little bit of a more unique quality moving on into the other films from here Mm -hmm. and kind of introducing like a different style to the look of magic. It definitely is because I don't think we've seen these like colorful streams Mm -hmm. with wands really at all until this movie. And I also love the inversion of um, Voldemort's uh, spell being green and Harry's being red. Yeah. Because I think like the green red thing is usually reversed. Like you think of like Star Wars and like the green lightsaber and red and like they usually are 
good and evil in the opposite way. Mm-hmm. So I like I love that Harry's attack is red. Um, but yeah, the 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 um, ghosts kind of come out of the wand. Yeah, and they encourage Harry and give him a chance to escape, and so Harry is able to uh, get away and bring Cedric's body back to Hogwarts because he grabs the cup. Um, and I I also want to call out the scene in the movie here when Harry returns to the be- like the beginning of the maze where everyone's gathered because like the music starts playing and yeah. this is like kind of the theme music for the tournament and like Harry's just on the ground like clutching Cedric's body and it's just like weeping and it's like this very slow realization that the bystanders and the audience has that like something is wrong and it quickly turns from like kind of silly to like horror um, but it does it so well. And I just really appreciate the way the scene plays out. Uh, yeah, I think I love how long it took yeah. everyone to realize something was wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, I think that was very realistic. It's not like two seconds after they get back, like the band cut. Like, it takes the band like 20 seconds before like the music kind of like fades out, fades out or gets disrupted. And like, and then people start to realize what's going on. And mm-hmm. like, I, I agree, like the effect it was kind of daring because it easily could have seemed like silly or funny. Yeah. But it kind of just added to the horror and the discomfort of the scene and also highlighting the fact that like this tournament was supposed to be like a celebration and like something fun and like good. And how twisted it's become. And of course we get the really sad scene where um, Cedric Diggory's father is there and he's just like running towards his son and then like weeping over his body. Oh man. And it's just like so upsetting. And I think it brings home like some of the themes in, in this like book series and like, you know, so many people losing family members through like Voldemort and like his reign of terror basically. Um, but it's a great scene. Um, it's similar in the book as well. And Moody kind of like comes in and ends up grabbing Harry and bringing him back up to his office. I think Harry also, pl- uh, Daniel Radcliffe in this scene plays it really well too, I think. I do want to say that because I think we've criticized his performance a bit in other episodes. So I yeah. do want to say that he really like does a great job in the later half of this movie, especially. Yeah, like this scene, especially when he has to do a lot of heavy lifting, you yeah. know what I mean? In terms of his performance. And him facing off with Voldemort, too, I think he does a really good job in. And yeah, he just, um, I think, really finds his footing in this film, especially. I agree. We kind of get Moody revealing his master plan at this point. Yeah. And once again, I think the movie does something really smart here where, like, it's not, you, you get the impression early on something isn't right. Yeah. And then there's a great line when Moody asks about the graveyard Mm -hmm. and Harry reveals like, I never said that. Yeah. And meanwhile, another great element to this is that like the polyjuice potion is like wearing off and he's like trying to find like another spare vial. Yeah. Yeah. And he's like turning back. So like you get that like physical performance going Mm -hmm. along with it, which is really good. Yeah. But we do. We find out that Moody is actually Barty Crouch Jr. And he didn't die um, in Azkaban. Um, his mom like kind of took his place and um, it's very kind of complicated, honestly, but I'll, uh... I, I have a, a hot take, Adina. This <laughs> tell is, me, tell this me is a take. spicy meatball of a take, <laughs> if I meatball. say so myself. And I might, I'm probably not the only one who's maybe had this idea. I believe that the twist of Barty Crouch Jr. being Mad-Eye Moody was actually a 
late addition to the plot of this story when J.K. Rowling was writing it. Hmm. I don't think this story was originally plotted and figured out with this twist in mind. I mean, I think we have brought up already that there aren't a lot of clues to lead us Yeah, here. so that's like my first... So like, I guess if you're like looking at it from a couple perspectives, like what does Barty Crouch as Mad-Eye do in the story to help Harry? Because ultimately, a lot of the things he does are either, you know, oh, well, Cedric helped you because I told him to. Hagrid helped him because I suggested he do that. Yeah. Things like that where he apparently just told people to do things. Yeah. And kind of like, and he claims like, oh, I had to be careful so Dumbledore wouldn't notice. Yeah. But if you think about it, the twist in the story, the first twist is discovering that it was the plan all along for Harry to win. Yes. We don't know that at first. No. So Mad-Eye helping Harry wouldn't have set off any red flags to the reader. No. You know, in fact, it would have made sense because it's like, listen, you didn't want to be a part of this. You're too young. You're too young. You're really ill prepared. Like, I want to help you at least, like, make sure you You don't don't get killed. And I think that would have made sense for Mad-Eye's character. Yeah. To do that. You know what I mean? So the whole fact that, like, but it also makes sense that he, if he were just Mad-Eye, he wouldn't want to be, like, too overly favoring one Hogwarts member over the other. Yeah. And you can say, like, oh, well, you know, Barty Crouch Jr. clearly was just playing the role of mad eye very well but the thing with like jk rowling is like when she writes a mystery we've seen in the past she usually does a really good job of laying out clues where when you look back on them you're like oh of course like that makes so much sense now yeah like think about the chamber of secrets like harry's hearing this murderous voice in the walls right yeah then at some point we learn he speaks parcel tongue yeah then we find out there's a monster from the chamber of secrets so when we find out it's a big snake in the plumbing, we're like, of course. That like, makes sense. There's no explanation needed beyond that. Like it just, all those pieces they suddenly fit. click together. But with this, with this reveal, we get a chapter, a solid, We get so dense much explanation. Chapter. And first of all, a lot of those excuses of like how he helped Harry seem like really flimsy in my mind. Yeah. And then the other elements of the mystery that this ties into um, are either just backstory that we were just told about Barty Crouch Jr. Yeah. Like how he escaped, how he faked his death in Azkaban and actually escaped. Mm -hmm. Also the entire dark Mark thing that we find out he was responsible for. Like that whole explanation made like no sense. Cause like when that happened, like you're like who shot the dark Mark into the air? Which of these guys? It was someone, right? Yeah. And like, yeah, Barty Crouch Sr. was kind of responsible. He knew his son had done it. Yeah. But for the reveal to be like, oh, it was actually this guy that you didn't even know existed when this happened. Yeah, I, I don't feel like it was very fair in like giving us enough information to be able to figure it out on our own. Yeah, exactly. And like J.K. Rowling is usually very good about that. Yeah. But the way everything ties into this reveal, and this also explains why the kind of weird feeling we get about Mad-Eye in this story, because, like, Mad-Eye feels like he's being his character Yeah. throughout the story. There's no hint that, like, he's acting in a way that Mad-Eye shouldn't be acting. Yeah. Um. He's, like, giving good life advice to people. I know. He's... <laughs> passionately teaching them how to defend against the dark arts, even though like 
he shouldn't want that. As- and it's it's honestly more in the movie that we see some like some slight clues. Yes. The movie kind of backtracks to like justify it a little bit more. Yeah. But if you're looking at the book, um, it's kind of a clusterfuck of interesting this explanation. So I genuinely think I don't know if it was to like for the sake of adding another twist or wanting to pad the book out with more content. Because this book got really it's a, it's a huge book. Yeah. And was also kind of when Harry Potter was really getting big. Yeah. Um, but that's my theory is that I don't think this, I think originally Moody was just supposed to be Moody. I kind of believe it. I would be willing to believe it. And even if not to go that far, I do think that it's poorly plotted. Yeah. Even if that's not true, I think all my complaints are justified that like there wasn't evidence or hints that Moody wasn't who he was. And like the dark Mark thing. There's also this other confrontation with like Harry under an invisibility cloak in a stairwell. Yeah. Where Moody takes the map from him. And then this really complicated explanation of how Moody killed his father. Yeah. And then he had to be like, oh, yeah. And then Snape told me, but actually I had already like. Yeah. Very complicated. I agree. Yeah. And and, and there is a lot of explanation at the end. And I do, I do think that it is the mark of a poor story, whether it's a book or a movie, when you have to explain for so long for anything to make sense. Like, I think we should already be getting that information. And when you have too much time that's just spent on exposition, it's boring for when you're reading and it's boring for when you're watching. So I think this is definitely a valid criticism, Ian, and I agree with you. And if anyone has heard anything, I, I doubt J.K. Rowling would ever admit to that. Um, but if she's ever said anything like that or that like refutes what I said or anything like that, I'd love to hear it. But that's, that's my theory. That's my hot take (laughs) is that Moody was always meant to be Moody and Barty Crouch Jr. Cause it feels like that whole plot line involving him and Winky the house self and all that other stuff feels like it has like, like a dotted line around it that you could easily like remove it from the plot. Yeah. And not, not a lot would like rely on it Mm -hmm. so transitioning a bit to the end here after all this information is revealed we have a bit more in the book where um fudge comes in and dumbledore is like hey voldemort's back and fudge doesn't want to believe it and in fact uh the dementors come in and kill barty crouch yeah that's another part of it is that barty crouch like oh conveniently is killed yeah and can't like explain any of this firsthand exactly but this also makes it convenient because um fudge doesn't want to believe that voldemort is back and i think this really does set up the next book and movie even though the movie doesn't go here with fudge um And the fact that, like, there are people that don't want to believe what's happening is happening and would Mm -hmm. rather, like, you know, be ignorant and stay safe in that ignorance. And it's really cool because we see kind of Dumbledore arguing with Fudge about this. And then once Fudge is gone, Dumbledore's like, okay, well, we have to, like, get our people together, basically. And he kind of, like, mobilizes the Weasleys and Snape and Sirius. And it's kind of like, if no one's going to, like, do what we need to do, like, we have to do it. I loved this, and I I think it gets into a lot of what's going to be interesting coming up in the series. Yes. Um, But it kind of sets up the next book in a way that, like, we haven't seen in any of the other books before. I agree. Um, Really hinting at, like, 
Dumbledore kind of against the Ministry of Magic and that kind of tension mm-hmm. and like what other characters are going to be doing in the future books. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I really love Dumbledore really kind of leaning into fudge. And yeah, once again, this was something that felt super relevant mm-hmm. where Dumbledore was like, you need to like admit Act now. Yeah. And admit to what's going on before it's too late. And here in America, with our poor response to COVID and everything yeah. that's been going on and how bad it is now, like that just resonated so well where, you know, the government and the higher ups want to pretend everything's fine yeah. and then just hope that they are. And then it leads to disaster. And I like that this in both the book and the movie, we get Dumbledore addressing the school and telling everyone how Cedric really died and kind of being like, you need to know the truth. And like people will, maybe your parents will be mad that I told you this, but like, you need to know what you're up against. And like, yeah, you're just kids, but like you deserve to know what's really going on. And this is like a very impactful moment in both the book and the movie. Well, and he says like to honor Cedric, you deserve to know what happened. Yeah. Like he didn't die in an accident. He didn't die because of a mistake he made. Yeah. And I really loved him bringing up that issue and being like, you know, it would be a disservice to him for you to believe anything but the truth. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then also, I guess Rita Skeeter is like a beetle (laughs) unregistered. Uh, Hermione puts her in a jar for who knows how long and is just like shaking it every now and then, I guess, to like torture her. It's very dark. It's kind of, yeah, it's, it's a dark turn for Hermione. But you know what? After the shit she went through, I know, I think she's earned it. She's definitely earned it. And then Harry does a good deed and gives all the money he won in the Triwizard Tournament, which essentially is blood money to him now. And he doesn't want it. Yeah. And he's like, here, Fred and George, go um, like establish your joke shop. I love that, too. And, yeah. and how he said, like, I think we're going to, like, need some laughs yeah. in the coming years. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought that was a really good kind of bringing the money back into that and, like, helping out Fred and George. Yeah. Because they're, like, very, they're, like, entrepreneurs, this book. Yeah. Like, they're really and trying And they're trying to, so hard. Yeah, and I love that about their characters. Mm-hmm. All right, that's it. That's it. We're done. Good, <laughs> goodbye. <laughs> Which one's better, Ian? Oh, no, you're pinning it on me. Uh, can I hear what you you have to say first? Because like I'm actually much more torn about this than I thought I would be. Okay. Well, despite all the points that you just brought up, I still think the book is better. Yeah. The movie, especially coming off of the third film, which was so good, it's just so lacking. Honestly, like even the lighting, especially at the beginning, was like very off. And like It just felt like it took a long time to get into its groove. And unfortunately for the film, because this book is so dense, like essentially the film can do nothing more than just be like first task, ball, second task, third task, and that's it. So like I think it suffers because we don't get a lot of like character moments really. Um, And the book obviously has a lot more leeway in that way and is able to like give us more. Um, And I really do love getting to expand the world of Hogwarts, seeing the different schools brought into um, Hogwarts, you know, talking about the different countries in the Quidditch World Cup, and then also kind of finding out more about the time when Voldemort was in power and even afterwards and kind of like the tone and vibe of like the wizarding world and like all of the things that happen, the trials and things like that. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to say the book. Yeah, you know, for me, like the book 
So I was kind of surprised reading it because like the mystery element I thought was like really lacking and hurt the book quite a bit in my opinion. Yeah. Um, I agree that I really like kind of fleshing out a lot of like the larger world, adding like all these other characters, kind of like finding out a lot more of the history. But once again, also like this book feels like it isn't about something that the way the other books were. Yeah. Like we've always, we've kind of said like the third one was about like criminals and the justice system and the failings of it yeah which was interesting the second book was a lot about prejudice and Mm -hmm. like bigotry um but like this one didn't really feel like it had a strong theme in that way which i also thought was kind of a minus and also the movie even though i did have a lot of issues with it especially at the beginning like you said i think that it does a lot to make up for the failings of the book Mm -hmm. you know it gets rid of the whole elf line storyline it adds more clues to mad eyes identity makes that more fair i think it handles the voldemort scene really well which like of all the scenes you're gonna do well or should do well i'm glad they did that one Mm -hmm. i'm really torn you can disagree with me babe i know i can (laughs) like i'm not trying to like Well, your decision will impact the rest of your future (laughs) oh god um so i'm still gonna say book I didn't enjoy the book as much as I thought I would. And I actually enjoyed the movie more than I thought I would. But I still like these books a lot. Like, they're still really good to read. Yeah. Um, I liked a lot of the expanded stuff. Um, the, the subplots with, like, Hagrid, I loved. Yes. It's really close for me, but I'm, I'm still going to say the book, too. All right. You committed. I committed. <laughs> it's getting branded on me. Yes. Let's do lightning round. <laughs> Let's do lightning. Okay, so first up for lightning round, I just want to talk about my favorite subplot in this book, which is Haggard and the Blast Ended Scroots. It's <laughs> <laughs> excellent. I just love this because they're just like horrifying creatures that uh, Haggard's class um, has to like help raise, and it's just terror <laughs> all around. And I'm just going to read a portion from the book here. So... To the class's horror, Harry Hagrid proceeded to explain that the reason the Scroots had been killing one another was an excess of pent-up energy, and that the solution would be for each student to fix a leash on a Scroot and take it for a short walk. The only good thing about this plan was that it distracted Malfoy completely. And I'm skipping ahead a little bit, and this is Harry and uh, Hagrid talking together. The pair of them looked out over the lawn. The class was widely scattered now, and all in great difficulty. The Scroots were now over three feet long and extremely powerful. No longer shellless and colorless, they had developed a kind of thick, grayish, shiny armor. They looked like a cross between a giant scorpion and an elongated crab, but still without recognizable heads or eyes. They had become immensely strong and very hard to control. Look like they're having fun, don't they? Hagrid said happily. Harry assumed he was talking about the Scroots, because his classmates certainly weren't. Every now and then, with an alarming bang, one of the Scroots' ends would explode, causing it to shoot forward several yards, and more than one person was being dragged along on their stomach, trying desperately to get back on their feet. (laughs) I just love the image that this scene, like, gives you. I think both of us had the same image in our heads, like, if it were in the movie, like, Harry and Hagrid having this discussion and just like in the background, like out of focus. It's just like people being dragged (laughs) around. (laughs) Um, Similarly, there's another funny part in the book. I love that like 
Harry and Ron have continued to take Professor Trelawney. Yeah. Um, because she's just like the ultimate blow off class <laughs> and they just like don't care and they fall asleep in her class all the time. But they're supposed to predict their futures like by looking at the stars and Harry and Ron just spend like a whole evening like making up a month's worth of predictions. <laughs> and Ron is like, just make them like really sad and like devastating dangerous. and dangerous. And she'll be like super happy. <laughs> uh, and later on in the book, it said, uh, Harry and Ron were deeply amused when Professor Trelawney told them that they'd received top marks for their homework in their next divination class. She read out large portions of their predictions, commending them for their unflinching acceptance of the horrors in store for them. (laughs) But they were less amused when they were asked to do the same thing for the month after next. Both of them are running out of ideas for catastrophes. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. I did too. It was really great. Next up for lightning round, I just want to call out a scene where um, Harry and Ron are in I think the uh, common room or in the, where are they? The Great Hall. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, oh, yeah. (laughs) They're talking about trying to get dates for the Yule Ball, and Snape keeps coming over and like shushing them, and he just like keeps like hitting them over the head, (laughs) and it's so funny. And I also want to say that like, there's some moments in the book where Snape is also like really shitty, especially to Hermione again. So I just want to say again that the movie version of Snape is infinitely better than the book. I know. That's like he gets like not a lot to do in this movie. No. But that one scene is like, yeah, worth Alan Rickman being in the film. It's so great. (laughs) Uh, There's another part in the book where I just have to call out Harry on his bullshit (laughs) because Dobby, sweet lovable, amazing Dobby for Christmas gives Harry handmade socks that he like knitted himself and they have bought the wool with his wages. He bought the wool with a little bit of money that he makes hand knitted Harry socks that have like Quidditch things on it, like broomsticks and snitches. And he gives them to Harry and Harry in exchange gives Dobby the grossest, oldest pair of socks he owns. And not only that, but Harry didn't even like the fucking socks Dobby gave him. No, he's so ungrateful. He was like, like it mentioned like him going on to open like more like rewarding presents or something like that. I know. And I was just like, fuck you. What an asshole. You don't deserve Dobby's socks. I know. You piece of shit. (laughs) (laughs) I was deeply offended by Harry's lack of like gratitude towards Dobby. I agree. (laughs) So that wraps up lightning round. Um, Thank you for listening to this episode. This was really fun. Again, um, please consider donating to a trans organization this month if you can. And if you would like to follow us on social media, you can. We're on Twitter at Covered Credits. And you can email us at coveredcreditspod at gmail.com. Yes. Uh, and if you want to become a patron, we uh, give out monthly episode schedules. We take your recommendations and put them higher up in our queue, mm-hmm. as well as you get access to all of our bonus episodes of After Credits, yeah. uh, which we do monthly, roughly. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, if you want access to all of that, you can get all of that for as low as uh, $1 a month. Mm -hmm. So consider, you know, becoming a patron of ours. And if you can't, um, a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts goes a huge way in helping us be discovered on that platform. So yeah, thank you again for listening to this episode. Thank you for listening. Yeah, and we'll see you next time. See you next time. Bye. Bye.